Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Number But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. And Flynn, we actually got to see each other in person. <laughs> yes, we did. We had we had a, a great dinner uh, in Brooklyn, and I overate, but that's nothing new. <laughs> Peter Luger, it was better than I remembered. Yeah, so I'm surprised it's been that long since you've been there. But well, uh, it, it, I've lived in Los Angeles for a long time, and. Just being in New York, I think there was something about being in New York. The the energy of the city is obviously rebounding now as hopefully COVID is coming to an end. And it was it was just for me great to see my family, to see you and Claudine at 15 months since I've been to New York, by far the longest period of my lifetime. So it was it was just good to be there. Yeah, it was great to see you. Uh, great to see you in person and be able to talk about the podcast in person rather than just on the phone. Yeah, and we were also talking about the Boston 92 release, yes. which I think it, a little surprising how much it has lingered for me. It, it's a very good listen. Yeah, for me, too. I uh, obviously I'm a big fan of the of that material. I love I love that tour, but I've actually been surprised about how much I've, I keep listening to it over and over and over again. Even what's funny is that the the cheesy sense of Gloria's eyes is like one of my favorite parts. Oh, um, that I can't admit to. <laughs> well, I have no problem admitting to that, and of course the the three songs to open, and then um, really enjoying Real World. Uh, I I know it's not the the version of it, but I think it's a very different song that, than it was at the Christic shows, and and I think it works on its own. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying, and obviously it's far superior to the recorded version, which <laughs> I don't think we need to bash that one again, but a, a terrible misfire. Needless to say, it's not the Christic version, but he, he brought elements of that into the version of Real World here. To me, the song that really stands out is Soul Driver, just because it's the only time I think we're going to hear in the archive series in its full band arrangement. And he did a really good job with it. It, it was fleshed out from earlier performances on the tour. And I love the opening guitar piece that he does. And it it just got a real interesting sound to it. There was something going on with Soul Driver, and we knew that from the Christic. Unfortunately, they didn't really get it on the record, but I think he got more of it here in, in the live version late in 92. I, I totally agree. And and I think the, the segue into Souls of the Departed is just, that's just perfect. That's two episodes in a row now we've talked about the 92 release. <laughs> now we can move on to something more recent. <laughs> just a little bit. Bruce winning the Woody Guthrie Prize and performing four songs, obviously virtually. He performed Guthrie's Jode. He did Deporte. I believe both of those were done for the first time since 1996. And then he followed that with Across the Border and his own Ghost of Tom Jode. Very nice performances, oh, but really it was something he said during the discussion <laughs> that has gotten everyone's attention. And that is a reference to an album that takes place in the West that will be coming out soon. For one thing, that sounds exactly like Western Stars, but clearly the man knows what he's talking about. And that <laughs> Western Stars was released two years ago. I don't think he forgot about it. So there is apparently another record that takes place in the Western part of the United States that is lined up to come out. What do you think about that? Well, there's what we know. We do know that there is another another album that he recorded at the same time as Tom Joe, the, the daytime sessions that I believe that's the one that uh, it was referred to in Brian Hyatt's book as being in the can. Yes. And, 
and we also know that he recorded about what 30 to 40 more songs along with the the all, with the material that uh, appeared on western stars so that so either one could fit but we haven't heard any rumors about a, a new album coming out anytime soon yeah uh, people who are generally well briefed on these things were very surprised themselves i think at that comment and there seems to be some confusion is he talking about a standalone record which if it is one of the things that you're referring to maybe has been elevated out of tracks too, because we know that's where the work has been going on most likely for, for that material. Or is he somehow referring to tracks too, which we do believe will contain unreleased albums and he either slipped up or he phrased it in a strange way. And it's really an album that's going to be in the tracks two box, which we hope is coming again. <laughs> yeah. Third time's a charm, but you know, I, I'm not really, Honestly, I don't buy that, you know, it's uh, it's one disc of out of what, 10, 10 or so that would make up tracks too as in a big box. See, I, I don't think that's how he would have referred to it. it. It didn't seem like that was what he was talking about. So it, it perhaps he did elevate. They're working on this material. Maybe he sat there and he said this record right here, it should stand on its own. And, and that's what he's talking about. I, I think it would be weird, though, if it's the daytime Jode sessions that record would be 25 years old. And from all indications, there's going to likely be an East Street band tour next year. Uh, Steve has said that. Bruce himself said he expected to be back on the road in 2022. We're hearing some rumblings about that. Why would he release a Jode-associated album right before the band was going on tour? There's a lot that still needs to be ascertained here as to what's going on. Hopefully they'll make an announcement soon. Hopefully, and I still think the the next E Street tour, he's gonna he's really gonna pull out a lot of the stuff from Letter to You, and and not much from Western Star. So it really doesn't matter uh, if he releases a a non E Street album in the in the uh, in the next six months or so before he goes on the road with the band with the E Street band next year. I guess so. I mean, maybe because we're in such a strange period following COVID, and people are going to be touring for records that are a year or two old. But in a traditional time, it seems to me that it would be very unusual to be planning an E Street tour and to release a Jode associated solo record right before that. But again, it we're in a very unusual time. Well, we don't know how Jode associated it really is, though. It's it's could it's from that same era, but it doesn't have to be uh, necessarily more you know, more Balboa Park and Youngstowns and in the line it could be no something... but it's definitely not east street band oriented from what we know no. uh, uh tiger rose is that the name of the song tiger rose long I time coming other titles off the top of my head <laughs> was long time coming on that record well it, if it was it ended up being on devils and dust so that's no longer apt right but what i'm saying is that type of material as we know, he never plays anything from Devils and Dust, really, with the band. No. That would not be what I would think would lead into an E Street Band tour. But again, we're in an unusual time, so we'll just have to see. And now, our main topic tonight is going to be, it's an interesting one, considering the participants in this conversation, Hal actually produduces films. And I haven't seen a film in the theater since 2008. So we coming that is from so it, ridiculous. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Actually, I should say that I haven't seen a non-Bruce related or non-Hal produced film in a theater since 2008. 
Okay, well, that's at least appreciated. That's a little bit more accurate. But tonight we're talking with Caroline Madden. She's the author of Springsteen as Soundtrack. It's the sound of the boss in film and television. And in her book, she connects the Bruce Bruce's life, his career, his music with very specific films. Uh, welcome, Caroline, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I just described your book a little bit. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. My book takes a look at 13 films and television shows that, like you said, sort of contextualizes Bruce's life and his work within films and TV shows that use his music on the soundtrack. And I, I wanted to have a very narrow focus on only a few films um, and, and each film or TV show uh, really focuses on like a specific um, theme in Bruce's life and work. So, uh, for example, in Country, that film is about Vietnam veterans. So I discuss a lot of, you know, Bruce's work with the Vietnam War and war in general. Um, and as another example, uh, Show Me a Hero, an HBO TV series, which not only uses his music uh, as sort of the backdrop for like everyday lives in New York, but using Bruce within that show speaks to his comments on race and just equality in America overall. I think you nailed that. And, and I find the book very interesting for that reason. And, and you took great examples. Show Me Heroes, in my opinion, one of the great pieces of work on TV in recent years. Of course, David Simon and the team he worked mm -hmm. with there is a, a, their masters. And mm -hmm. uh, just as we get into your book, there is a couple of chapters in particular that we want to highlight because mm -hmm. they really do establish both from the perspective of Bruce's music and also how music works in cinema to, mm -hmm. to help support a film. I think you gave really good examples. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, that's, that was really the goal of my book, to show how soundtrack is just so much more than setting the scene or even background music. If you, you know, sit down and, and listen, um, you, can, you can find that a lot of the lyrics and the story of of the songs themselves are really speaking towards the characters and the themes of a film of the film as a whole. Oh yeah, I can speak to this, of course, from our work and the amount of attention that goes into song placement in movies. Now it's very challenging mm -hmm. because I'm not sure if people know this. When you have a song in a movie, basically you need rights from two different aspects of the music. You need what's mm -hmm. known as a sync right, which is the publishing, and then you need the rights to the master, which is the actual track that goes in the movie. Sometimes, mm -hmm. as in the case with Bruce, those are controlled by the same people, and sometimes they're controlled by different people or different entities, and, and it's, it's very challenging. So sometimes the director will have a song that they're dying to put in the movie and they can't get the rights to it. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit because you provide one of the most famous examples of that as it relates to Bruce, mm -hmm. and that, of course, is Mask. Yes, uh, that Mask, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, he he really wanted a lot of Springsteen songs to be in the film. And what there was a lot of you know legal issues on Springsteen's side and with Universal 
And what happened was uh, when like Bogdanovich went, the film was shot and he went on vacation. And when he came back from vacation, the studio had replaced all the songs with Bob Seger. And for, and that's how the film came out in theaters. And for the longest time, that's the only version that anyone saw. So it wasn't until like 2004, the director's cut on DVD, you finally got to see the film as uh, Bogdanovich uh, envisioned it. And that is with Bruce Springsteen songs. So the, the version of the film that we were seeing for decades was, not what he wanted at all and it's it's very interesting to compare the two okay let me ask a question on that one so when the director went on vacation when he left Mm -hmm. he he was under the impression that bruce's music was going to appear in the film right uh yeah i mean from from what i can recollect from my research yeah he he knew there was there were legal issues and i believe his producers and just uh everyone involved you know we're telling him like you're probably not going to get bruce's music um but he but they didn't even consult him on which music they were gonna replace bruce with so yeah that is highly unusual (laughs) especially for a director (laughs) like peter bogdanovich who is certainly a director of of major note right yeah so he's a pretty high level director did so i'm just surprised that he didn't totally confirm that he had bruce's music before he put the film to bed yeah i i can't recall the exact details but i do know that he yeah the the the, the decision for bob seeger was not initially his I, I can address that because what happens is in these circumstances, he didn't have final cut apparently, and he was working with Universal. I believe it was Sid Sheinberg, who was a very, very powerful individual in Hollywood, and their budget considerations and all of these things that go into making these selections, as well as thousands of other selections when you're making a movie. And sometimes you don't get what you want as a director. Now, this is a a very bizarre situation that the man went on vacation and they took the songs out and he came back Mm -hmm. and that was how the movie was. There's no question about it. It does really serve as an example as to how these things work. And I've had these conversations with directors. Now, there's something we like to refer to as as what we call temp love, where uh, uh, what happens is a lot of times when these movies are put together and an editor will play songs in that they feel are relevant or working in conjunction with the music supervisor and and the songs get placed and, and directors will watch the movie and and they fall in love with it even though now I work in the indie world so like it, it, some on my first movie the editor put Beatles songs into the movie and Ellie Canner my dear friend and dear work associate you know who directed three of my movies we would sit there and she'd be like oh I love this song and I'd be like it's the Beatles, Ellie. You know, so, you, you know, you're not going to get the Beatles. But in this case, it really, because of the and I want to talk more about this, because you really do lay out the differences in how the film is altered by taking out, say, Badlands and replacing it with Katmandu, uh, a fine song, but <laughs> a little different feel. Yeah, very, very different. Or, you know, the rock and roll never forgets replaces the promised land, which is really sort of the emotional conclusion mm-hmm. of the entire movie. Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm, you know, I, I do enjoy those Bob Seger songs, but it just, it does not have that same, like, 
narrative drive and and as I sort of explain in the book, um, the 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 film of Mask is about a boy uh, with like facial uh, dis- facial differences and uh the you know the promised land and badlands their the thesis of those songs you know is about like just rising rising above um ter- like turmoil in your life and those are those become rocky's anthems and without that it's just with the bob seger songs it it just it doesn't have that heart frankly and you were quite critical of the of the original theater cut and then very i mean you love the 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 2004 director's cut uh so it really worked for you yeah and i don't even you know say that just as a bruce fan i i just think you know narratively these songs communicate which what is like pretty much the fundamental thesis of of uh, Bogdanovich's film, which is, you know, despite whatever hardships you have to just persevere. And that that's why Rocky's story is, is so inspiring because he had every reason to be depressed or not care, care about life, but he, he did anyway. And he had such a, you know, bright spirit and those songs, you know, as I've said, they, they really communicate that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Caroline. And and it really does show how the right music cue, whether it's a song or a piece of score, can impact the movie. And, and these are things you don't really think about when you're watching the film. But if it's right, it's right. And it adds a layer of emotion that is, is, is this is a perfect example, as you point out. I thought it was a good chapter to really like establish the importance of film film soundtracks and you know how how much more meaning you know they can they can have beyond just you know hearing hearing music what i thought you did a great job of doing was showing how it's not just to mute the music and the lyrics at the in the what you're hearing but all the other i I don't want to say baggage but all the stuff that kind of comes 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 to mind with it when you're hearing a specific song just adds that much more to the film yeah definitely like even just factoring in like who the artist is and what their life is and and that you know that was sort of the whole idea behind my book you know as i mentioned like it's it's not just you know oh it's a bruce springsteen song like what what does it mean to have you know what does it mean to include bruce springsteen in this film like what what else is the film trying to say by including this artist and are there any you know connections beyond just the song but you know within the artist's life's work and and just personal biography and like during my research process and just watching the films it was just fascinating to like draw those all these like connections that you wouldn't even necessarily think of when you're first watching a film but it, it again, it just goes to show that you know these these artistic choices are very purposeful. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Now before we move on to any of the other chapters, I did want to get a little bit about your research process. How did you get into these topics? And and I believe it's been mentioned in your book. You spoke to John Landau. 
I well, I I spoke via email. <laughs> but, oh, that counts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was I was pleasantly surprised that you know I was able that he he was able to um, answer my questions. Uh, in terms of research process, um, I like well, you know, I I looked on Bruce's IMDb and tried you know tried to sort of assess. Um, what what films would be worth watching? Like I did, I did watch others, but I I knew that I wasn't going to because his, uh, his music is in like over two hundred films and TV shows, um, so I knew that I was gonna keep it pretty small. But um, yeah, I so yeah, it was just a lot of you know watching films and just narrowing down you know what what themes in Bruce's work that I wanted to talk about and then which film would sort of be the conduit for that. Oh, I, I think it's great that John spoke to you and, and several of his nuggets I really enjoyed reading. He, he gave you good stuff. Now, speaking of films where Bruce the artist really complements the emotional center of the film, one of your chapters is on Philadelphia. Needless to say, Bruce won an Oscar for that film with his song Streets of Philadelphia directed by Jonathan Demme. I think this is one worth talking about. Absolutely. You, you relate in the book how Jonathan Demme, he recruited Bruce to do the song because he wanted, he wanted to get a familiar, a familiar face and voice to, mm-hmm. to, to basically bring, I mean, to bring in middle America, to, to see this book, to see this movie rather about a gay man uh, dying, dying of AIDS. And, did he, did he, he didn't really didn't get what he wanted. No, not at all. Uh, he, he wanted a more like hard rocking, I think like a Neil Young-esque uh, song. Um, and Bruce, he, he, you know, obviously comes out with something, you know, far more quieter and, and somber and, and moving. Um, yeah, Demi wanted this also sort of plays into Tom Hanks's casting as well. Uh as you said, like a a very familiar, you know, masculine just man's man. <laughs> um so <laughs> like someone that, you know, middle America could identify and feel comfortable with and, you know, that's why they cast Tom Hanks because he was the you know, every man. So, yeah, in, in, in terms of the song, uh, it's obviously, you know, a beautiful requiem for, for those who have, who experienced AIDS, who lost their lives. And it, it really, um, like echoes the film's ending, you know, which is heartbreaking. Um, and other other things that I talk about in that chapter is not while while Bruce does sort of embody the the American everyman, there are also some like queer aesthetics to his performances, to even some of his songs. There there's a lot of scholarship out there um, about Bruce and and the queer community that. You know, I if anyone's interested in that, uh, 
highly recommend reading. Uh, so yeah, I, I sort of use use this chapter to explore, you know, Bruce's longstanding relationship with the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess that does any of that come from the fact that a lot of Bruce's music is kind of written. He's he he's he's an outsider, and that's yeah. how a lot of those in the gay community feel like especially when they're young and they don't understand they're, they're not really sure what's going on exactly like yeah like something like back streets or even i feel like out in the street i i kind of get that vibe like it's you know when you're at work you're you're presenting yourself as someone else but when you're out in the street and work's over you can finally you know be who you are uh yeah like characters who who are experiencing this feeling of you know being marginalized and and yeah as you said like outsiders i think that one of the beautiful things about the song is as well as capturing everything that you're describing there i don't know how many other songs from rock stars so carefully reflect on the experience of slipping away and dying i he yeah. Now, now, I, my mom died in 1990 of cancer, uh, right before Bruce had written this song. Of course, unfortunately, uh, Dave and Barbara's daughter, Kristen Ann Carr, had passed away from cancer. It, it I am sure that that had a huge impact on him, just as uh, my mother did on me, because he, he was very, very close to Kristen, as we know. I mean, it strikes me, even though this is a movie about AIDS, you know, mm -hmm. you could so easily put these lyrics on to a character who is slowly losing a battle against cancer or, or so many other illnesses. And it really is, it, uh, it's one of his better written songs, certainly of the post Born to Run, Born in the USA era, the classic era, as we like to call it. Uh, it, it, it it's, it's a remarkable piece of work. Yeah, it, it's absolutely just stunning and, and heart-wrenching. And I think also what you're saying about how, you know, it, the song grapples with death and, you know, that is a, you know, universal, you know, emotional uh, period, you know, in one's in our lives, you know, with families and friends. Um, and I think that also works to the song works to uh, what Demi's goal was, which is to have everyone, everyone relate to these characters who, who have AIDS and characters that people might be prejudiced towards. Bruce's song, when you, when you hear, you know, when you hear those, those just heartbreaking words, you can relate to it and you're relating to a character that has AIDS. And, and I think that just works towards, you know, breaking down those barriers for those who, who might be prejudiced towards uh, the, those, those who have AIDS, the gay community, et cetera. That universality definitely, I, I think, connects it to people in a way that they otherwise wouldn't have expected. And that's what both I, I, Demi was trying to do with the movie and I think Bruce ultimately was trying to do with the song and, and they were both successful with it. You know, you, you look mm -hmm. at, at some of the lines in this song. I mean, especially they're the opening lines of the movie and they're the opening lines of the song. I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. 
I was unrecognizable to myself. It's just mm-hmm. just so tremendously powerful. Yeah. He, Bruce does a does a great job of taking something. I mean, that's a huge feeling, and he just put it so concisely and and so precisely, and summing everything up there. Mm-hmm. As we know, Bruce has done that in so many other instances on so many other topics. But again, just because of 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 what this specific topic is, and and the character dying of AIDS, and you think of mm-hmm. there's a moment in the film where Demi uses Streets of Philadelphia score. It's really one of the lower mm-hmm. moments for the Hanks character, who Andrew Beckett. He's standing on a street corner, and there, and Demi uses Streets of Philadelphia score, and and I, I think there's additional musicians on that that aren't on. Yeah the main studio track, uh, Ornette Coleman and, and little Jimmy Scott, the, the power of that moment just helps tie everything together cinematically. And also for, I, I, I think for Bruce as an artist, I mean, like what Demi did there, it, it really highlights, as we were saying, I mean, the, just the sort of mastery that Bruce is, is expressing in these songs. Yes. That, that I think is probably my favorite moment in the film and especially the way it just holds on this like tight close-up of Tom Hanks's face and it it's just it's just devastating but the score you know the score is it's it's both haunting and beautiful at the same time uh yeah it's a really powerful moment all right I have a question then as a non-film person you keep you keep talking about a difference between a song and a score Mm-hmm. How okay? So when it, when the film opens, that's a song, right? Well, yes, because a song is a song, and score is generally music composed to highlight the scene underneath. That you know you're normally working with a composer. In this case, they took Bruce's actual song and turned it into a piece that was used for score. Now, one of the things that Caroline does very well in her book is to explain the difference between uh, diegetic mm-hmm. and non-diegetic use of music, which is how a song appears in a scene. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Caroline, I won't steal your thunder if you want to talk a little bit more about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so di- diegetic music is when it's with within the narrative itself. So for example, if I was a character in a film and I turned on the radio and a song started playing and I started dancing to it, it's within the story space um and then non-diegetic would be the example that we've talked about uh with tom hanks you know coming out of the lawyer's office and bruce's score starts playing andrew can't hear that score it's outside of the story space okay so diegetic means that the characters are actually hearing it themselves yep and interacting with it and and that you know uh I talk about also like in my book um, there that there's a significance when the characters themselves are interacting with Bruce Springsteen, like in, in mass, like, <laughs> yeah, Rocky, that's a really Rocky good point. Is, you know, like Rocky is a fan of Bruce. Um, Nick with Cisco and show me a hero is a fan of Bruce. So it's like, what is, what does that mean for the character? You know, why do they identify with Bruce? You know, what, what sort of connection do they have with him and why? That was one of the biggest and kind of most intriguing things uh, in my book that I really enjoyed like writing about. 
Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Now, when you talk about interacting, we have the, a great example of Bruce himself interacting with a character <laughs> in High Fidelity. Yeah, that yes. is... <laughs> Perfect segue there. And so yeah. he's actually talking to Bruce Springsteen. Yes. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen the film. Can you uh, can you refresh me on this? Yeah, sure. Um, so John Cusack plays uh, Rob, and Rob is like a huge music geek. And he's also uh, going through a very painful breakup. And he sort of, he imagines himself talking well he imagines Bruce <laughs> talking to him and giving him advice uh giving him advice to go and talk to his list of top five girlfriends <laughs> like the girlfriends that you know really did a number on him uh, <laughs> top five breakups at, of all time this is out of the mind of Nick yeah. Hornby I might add who of course wrote <laughs> the original novel true <laughs> Yes, and um, this advice sort of stems from Bobby Jean, and and um, yeah, so say he, you know, he Bruce tells Rob, you know, he should go say good luck and goodbye to his former girlfriend. And what purpose does that does that do for for Rob? I don't. He's kind of not. He's an, the, he's an arrested adolescent, isn't he? Yeah, well, of course, yeah. it's played by John Cusack. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he definitely has like a Peter Pan complex. <laughs> Surprised they didn't name him Peter in the film. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, Bruce's appearance in that film is a lot of fun because when when he pops up and he, yeah, I love when he says, "You call, ask how they are, and see if they've forgiven you." <laughs> like, yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I don't think that Rob, uh, we know he ultimately concludes that he, he thinks that they haven't forgiven him. 
well, it's, that's a isn't that a situation where it's actually the reverse where he, he needs he needs to forgive them, not the other way around. Yeah, well, probably. Yeah. I mean, that's that's serious baggage he was carrying around. Uh, well, Bruce does throw in a, a little reference to Bobby Jean in there where he says, uh, give him your final good luck, uh, goodbye, and move further down the road. He even references a song that I don't think, uh, maybe further on up the road had been written at that point. I forget exactly when High Fidelity came out. Came out, well, I remember he filmed it during the the, the Meadowlands run in 99. I forget exactly when okay, it came out. So he probably did have the song written yeah. by then. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Rob's kind of, he's, like very kind of selfish and a bit misguided about women. <laughs> Do you think it was a faithful at that adaptation of the book? Cause I, I don't, I read the book way before I saw the movie and I don't remember some of that kind of attitude coming off of Rob that I got from the, in the book. Well, Bruce played a very important role in the book as well. I mean, I, I think that that was one of the reasons why they, they tried to get him in the film but uh, that's a movie, and some people love it. It's not, and we're going to talk about another movie uh, be, from a filmmaker, Cameron Crowe, who's uh, has made several movies. I think that would be in the same sort of line of high fidelity, including one that starred John Cusack. Say anything uh, to me, <laughs> high fidelity never really hit the levels of the book. Maybe I was biased okay. because, of course, I loved the book so much before I saw it. Mm-hmm. But even with Bruce's participation, I, I, and Stephen Frears is an amazing director, but I, I just, High Fidelity never really grabbed me in the way uh, some of those other movies I just mentioned did. But that's just me. Yeah, I I love Nick Hornby. I love his work. I, I can't recall if I've actually read the High Fidelity book, but yeah, I as you've sort of said, I High Fidelity doesn't really grab me as much as some of his other work. I, I do also want to say there is a musical stage version of High Fidelity, and they have a song uh, sung by like a a Bruce. Uh, it's <laughs> called I think it's called Goodbye and Good Luck. Uh, it's really funny, so you should check it out on YouTube. It's 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 quite comical. <laughs> I, I did not know that. I will have to check that out. Yeah, it, it's awesome. <laughs> Does he sound Bruce esque? I mean. Oh yeah, I mean it's you know very overdone and and but it's 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 funny. It's it's a really good parody. Is it meant to be funny? I yeah I I think it is. They 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 have like a, an actual clip of someone performing it too. You know it, it it's definitely I think a little bit like the Halloween kind of version of Bruce, but I, I got a kick out of it. <laughs> okay. Well, sometimes things, things can be funny, but they weren't intended to be that way. <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, I think it's kind of tongue in cheek. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we should also mention, of course, that high fidelity does feature some Springsteen music. I think probably most notably the river, which mm-hmm. is, is used. Uh, I, he, Rob is playing that. That's, that's a diegetic use. He puts it, uh, he puts it on the turntable, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was back before vinyl was cool again. Yeah. Well, of course, that was the whole movie. I mean, they're, they're working <laughs> in this music store and, and he's a little, as you're saying, he's a little Peter Panish. And, and at the time, he's a little out of touch. You know, he's hiding behind the music. That that was the appeal of the book and the appeal of the movie. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't really hit didn't hit fully. But I think the 
the fact that he was such an avid music fan and snob certainly uh, struck home for a lot of people, so especially in our in our little community. Oh yeah, I think that's safe to say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's move on and and talk about one that is a little bit more serious. And you just brought the subject of this series up, Nick Wasisko. Show mm-hmm. Me a Hero, which was the HBO series created by David Simon. And this is mm-hmm. one of the most, I, I would say, I would use the word magnificent, uses of Bruce's music, and and he's used throughout the series. Now, the series wraps up, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but Lift mm-hmm. Me Up, who, of course, had also been used in an earlier John Sales film, is mm-hmm. used over the final series and montage of show me a hero to uh, just utterly devastating impact it's such a beautiful and and powerful show and yes that ending it it really it just blew me away um it blew me away too yeah i i don't really hear of a lot of people or rather i don't i don't know a lot of people who have actually seen show me a hero so it's nice to hear that you guys enjoyed it uh, I, I think it's a very, like, yeah, like, underrated series. Uh, he's the same guy who did The Wire, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, David Simon. I believe the entire Show Me a Hero series was directed by Paul Haggis. Am I remembering that properly? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, these are major, major filmmakers working on this. And the story is so tied to Bruce, his entire body of work. I mean, and, of course... He was a fan of Bruce in real life, but the way they use the music in the, in the series, I, uh, you made a point, Caroline, about how it's all about unity and inclusion and a common humanity, which needless to say is a major theme of <laughs> Bruce's music, his entire career, uh, uh, American Skin, which was written on a similar topic because this mm-hmm. this series is about the uh, segregation that was going on in Yonkers and the mayor's attempt to to create public housing and and provide people with a safe place to live and and a place where they could raise their children. And there was just tremendous pushback from a certain segment of the community. Every selection here is dead on, uh, you know, from the uh, how many Bruce songs are there, four or five hundred songs. I mean, this is a series that opens <laughs> with gave it a name. Oh, wow. I know. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I just I love that. Uh, intro. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, go ahead. You're right. I mean, you you make the point in the book. I mean, and it's not like the, their opening with "Born to Run." There, it gave it a name <laughs> is about a, a, as obscure a Springsteen song as you can get. But they they brought out the power of the lyrics in such a way mm-hmm. it just sets the whole show up. And you know, then they paid it off at the end with uh, with "Lift Me Up." Oh yeah, I I think what the show does really well is or the song selections do really well is really grounding you in in the emotional arc of of Nick uh because the show you know while it's dealing with very impactful themes there's you know a lot of it is kind of you know it's about like housing zones and you know some of that stuff can you know maybe seem a little I don't want to say dry, but it it's very like bureaucratic and but Bruce's music just helps you 
how brings out the the human side of the story you know how these were just everyday americans um you know with families just trying to have you know as he you know every as he sings in hungry heart everybody wants to have a home that's literally what this entire <laughs> yeah. series is about uh, that's that's a great point and and so on target with that one line it it, it really does bring it out and I, one of the things I, I highlighted a section from your book especially about lift me up that you wrote the ethereal and transcendent lift me up operates as an elegy for the loss of Nick's promising young life. And I, you put that so powerfully and, and, and it, that is exactly how the song is used there. And, and I think the use here uh, was even better than the, the, the actual movie it was written for. I agree. <laughs> yeah. It, it's such a, it really honestly like floored me. It was such a, a power powerful moment well it's a powerful moment also because of course you've got this 34 year old man who had such promise and had taken on this battle and lost the battle and then he 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 unfortunately he takes his own life unable to live with with the impact of that i think and everything that he's been to yeah well well i I, I don't know what to say about that, Flynn. I mean, we're talking about the thing. I read Caroline's quote. I apologize to anyone out there if it's a spoiler. First of all, this is a true life story that's, well, I wouldn't yeah. say it's well known, but people know the what happened. So I, I don't know. I mean, I apologize. This is whether or not you know that he dies at the end. Uh, this is television that is truly worth watching. And for anyone out there who, who hasn't seen it, I, I highly recommend you go on HBO Max and watch it. Now, I haven't seen it. I got to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But from what, when the impression I got from, from reading the book is that almost like he could, he didn't know what to do with himself after he lost, after he lost this battle. And he felt, yeah. I mean, I guess that was the whole, that part of the whole point. Of, yeah, of, and of he the didn't... show anyway. Yes, absolutely. And he didn't like just he didn't earn the recognition that he deserved like everything. It it just sort of got swept under the rug. And, you know, he had been so ambitious. He was such an ambitious person. And then to, you know, to have the success and then just suddenly be, you know, kind of ignored uh, was devastating to him. It's a, it's a very sad story. It's actually it's it's so relevant today because of of course unfortunately what has taken place in the country the last twelve months. But again, it, just check it out. We won't we won't ruin it anymore or spoil it anymore. This is it, it. If you like The Wire and you like Bruce, and we know a lot of the people who are out there like both of those things. If you haven't seen this, just seriously check it out. I haven't seen it, and it sounds like it's a very powerful story and. And the way Carolyn describes the use of Bruce's music in it, it's something that I that I definitely need need to check out. Um, now, shifting gears a little bit to another HBO show, uh, The Sopranos, where Bruce's State Trooper was used at the end of the season finale from season one over the closing credits. Um, mm-hmm. And and you you really talk talk a lot in the book about how it, the character in that song parallels Tony Soprano. Yeah, I I was actually like a little surprised at all the kind of parallels that I found. 
I think this is a good example of how, you know, one one song at the end of an episode can kind of encapsulate an entire season. Um, and uh, as I also discussed, there's like, there's a callback uh, in the series finale to the season one finale. So I write a little bit about that as well. Uh, but I wanted to mainly focus on just season one since, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't do the entire show or else it would be a very long chapter. <laughs> um <laughs> I do a whole book but, on uh, that. I know, you really could. You could write um, a whole book on that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. What I found I guess the main discussion points that I found uh within State Trooper and the Sopranos, um, for Tony uh, the protagonist of the state trooper, you know, obviously he's dealing with depression. He's on the run from the law. Um, I also talk a little bit about New Jersey itself, you know, as it is referenced in the song. And then obviously the show takes place in New Jersey. And I also talk a little bit about um, the Asbury Park scenes in the episode Funhouse. So that was really fun to like watch and analyze. Um, oh, and uh, I also discussed a, a bit about uh, like Tony's like childhood, his past, and how that also kind of relates to the Nebraska album as well. You made a point that really made me think, wow. And it was related to the placement of the song in the season finale from season one over the credits about how it anticipates and foreshadows what's going to happen in season two and and even beyond that. And and Chase is a master of using music. Steve has actually talked about this a lot on Twitter. But mm-hmm. it, when, it, when I read that, I was like, you know, she's 100% right. That song really does tell you mm-hmm. much about Tony's arc as we move forward into the mm-hmm. heart of the series. And it, what's amazing is that it, it just goes to show how well planned that was that, that Chase A really knew where the series was going and B that he, he could pick a song like that, that sort of secretly foretold what was to come. It's incredible. I, I, I loved reading about David Chase's um, like process and his real, he's, he does, he has a real affinity for, just using soundtrack and uh, you know obviously we see that throughout the show but it was interesting to read about like he he used to like watch he was like I think I don't know if I'm gonna get the story exactly right (laughs) but he was like have he would have the tv on mute and like play other music and see how that the music from the record player would like change the images he saw on screen. So he, you know, he, that he was just always sort of toying with this unique relationship between the moving image and sound. And I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that that's amazing. And one of the other things you wrote about the Sopranos, which wasn't directly about the use of Bruce's music, but I loved how you, mentioned in college, which is one of the famous episodes where we we really first see the true evil Tony 
uh, and how two faces, you know, which again is another universal song, basically a Jekyll and Hyde. But but I love what you wrote there about that 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 whole sort of episode uh, evokes that that there's a darker half in in Tony and 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 I think in Bruce's song he's really evoking that there's a darker half perhaps in all of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know I think that's also why. It's so interesting that, you know, Chase included a song from the, from Nebraska because obviously, you know, it's dealing with such, you know, at times very nihilistic and, you know, somewhat these, these criminal, you know, characters, but at, you know, while they may be criminals, they're also, you know, they're still, they're still humans and they're still, you know, grappling with, you know, emotional turmoil. So I, I really found that, there was uh, there was a lot that the the Sopranos was very you know rich in this like intertextual relationship with Bruce's music. I there was there was so much to to write about and discuss. Like I, as I said before, like I probably could have you know gone on to look at other seasons too and how how Bruce's work maybe impacts that as well. It's, there it's was actually- a lot to unpack. <laughs> It's actually kind of amazing that over the seven seasons of The Sopranos, there was only one Bruce song. Yeah, I, I know. I kept thinking, you know, they're going to use something different or not something different, but use another song at some point. Because, I mean, between all the, the there are so many connections between Bruce and The Sopranos that just surprising. Yeah. I Of course, and I always like the fact that I forget, I guess it was uh, Christopher's character opened a, a bar down the shore and he called it The Rock Horse. Uh, that that always cracked me up. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> so, when you actually saw The Sopranos, huh? I did. Yeah, actually, but that was you know it it ended a long time ago. So that was back when I was still watching television, or still watching quality television. Now I just watch reruns and stuff. <laughs> now, now, Carolyn, uh, before we part, and you have been awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This, I've really enjoyed this. Can we ask you about one movie that wasn't in your book? And of course, that's going to be one of my personal favorites because I'm the host of the show. Sure. Uh, that, that would be Bruce's music as used in Jerry Maguire, which in my opinion it's obviously not as serious a movie as a topic of something like Show Me a Hero or some of the other movies we've discussed in country. But if I was asked for one perfect use of Bruce's music, it's going to be the use of Secret Garden in Jerry mm-hmm. Maguire, a camera crow, of course, also a master of using music mm-hmm. in his films. And he had Danny Bramson, who was the music supervisor on that movie. D- did you look at, at Jerry Maguire at all uh, in, in researching your book? I did. And I absolutely, I love Jerry Maguire. It's one of my favorite movies. And I was very sad. I, I wanted to include it in my book. And I, I also love that moment. I think it's, it's just so beautiful and perfect. And I love it, <laughs> but I just couldn't, I, I didn't have anything. I mean, I'm, I'm sure of course there's something there, you know, there that I could talk about, but I, I was already covering um, Bruce's, you know, masculinity and, and uh, Bruce's depiction of women. You know, I talk about that in high fidelity and uh, Edward Burns, No Looking Back. So I really, I felt like I had those topics covered. So sadly, 
I wasn't going to include Jerry Maguire, but in short, I love it. And, and yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. There is, there is a moment in that scene when after Ray, the kid kisses Jerry and Renee Zellweger's character, Dorothy is falling apart and the music starts and mm-hmm. there's a scene on the street where Bonnie Hunt, as she walks away, says, Oh dear. And then mm-hmm. the first verse starts. It's just absolute perfection. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Jerry Maguire is one of literally one of my top movies of all time, but uh, Cameron Crowe, who also of course directed almost famous and other of my favorite films, but uh, just that moment on the street when they're standing across from one another, it, 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 oh. it doesn't have the cultural, <laughs> it doesn't have the cultural impact of something say like race relations or something like that. But in, in terms of romance and, and, and I think that Bruce, we, we don't really talk about that aspect of his music mm-hmm. as much these days, the romantic aspect of it and, and boy, yeah. Crow capture it right there. Yeah. I, I a thousand percent agree. Um, and yeah, like even as you're like, I can picture it in my head. Like that's so, that's how like well ingrained it is. And just what a, what a great moment. I can, I can see them in the street and the lights and oh, it's, it's really, really wonderful. Yeah. It's cinema perfection. I mean, it really is. (laughs) It it makes me want to watch it again. I watch that movie frequently. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Caroline, I I have one very specific question for you. Yeah. Um, In your discussion of in country, when you when you're talking about Vietnam, you yes. say that you say that the song "Nothing Man" was mm-hmm. originally inspired by a Vietnam veteran. Yes. Where Where did you get that? I I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Flynn has been like, talking about this all week since we knew you were coming on. He was like, Caroline says in the book that Nothing Man is inspired by a Vietnam vet. We got to find out how that is. Yeah. No. I. God, I feel like a bad author now. Like I, I, I'm trying to remember. I know I read it somewhere. I, I just don't remember where. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I will, I will have to dig through my research because I, I don't recall, but I do remember reading that. Okay. In one of my sources. <laughs> okay, because well, it, 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 it makes sense in a way. It does. It definitely fits. It fits 100. Yeah. percent Especially. I mean, you back it up by saying pe- the guys at Al's Barbecue act like nothing's changed, and that's kind of how America was trying to be about Vietnam. Yeah, like I, I remember when I first when I first read that, I was like, "Oh, that's interesting," because you know it does it does work obviously really well, really beautifully on the rise thing, you know about about a fireman or some sort of rescue worker, but putting it in the context of Vietnam, I was like, oh yeah, this really, this fits really well. And then um, it's, it, I, yeah. No, go on. No, I was just going to say, I, I just, I, I can't recall exactly what book I read that in. Okay. But, Cause it, yeah. it was interesting. Cause I mean, if it, if he had written in, in like 1983 or something, I, I, yeah. I totally like, yeah, that's totally, you know, I, I get that, but it's from, it's supposedly it's from 90, it's from 94 esque 94 ish. Yeah. I was going to say, I thought, I believe it was from 94. It's um, on whatever album, you know, whatever sessions that he was doing around, around the streets of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. That's really one of the interesting aspects of that song, because of course, as used on the rising, if someone had said it was written in 2001 <laughs> or, uh, or really 2002, you would think that it was definitely about 9 11. 
Right. Yeah, that's one of these yeah. things where it's there's so many interpretations, and they can, all of them can be right. Yeah, absolutely. I just, it just speaks to Bruce's, uh, you know, universality of of everything. Yeah, well, tying it back to where we started, just think of Streets of Philadelphia and and what we were saying. Of course, we know it's about a, a man dying of AIDS, but it's also so universal to people who are looking in that mirror and knowing that their life is slipping away. It's it's it just. As we said, it's just tremendously powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know that's sort of that's sort of why I assembled the the films that I did in my book. Um, just the how I wanted to show you know how Bruce is is illustrating these American lives and and these diverse American lives. Um, how he speaks. He, he may speak very specifically, but by doing that, he speaks to everyone. Well, you did a great job, and, and we highly recommend the book. We hope people are going to pick it up if they haven't already read it. And, and we thank you so much for joining us tonight. This, is, this has really been a treat. Yes, thank you very much. Um, spring Scene and Soundtrack can be I mean, or, ordered from Backstreet's Records if, if, you, if you get a chance. Yeah, signed copies on Backstreet's <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what I have. I have a, I have a signed copy. I like it. Well, uh, so I have it on my Kindle, uh, so I can I can read it anywhere. <laughs> that's the beauty <laughs> of the Kindle. That's true. <laughs> true. So thank you again for coming on. We've had a great time talking with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it was our pleasure. Thank you so much, Caroline. Once again, that was Caroline Madden, author of the book Spring Scene as Soundtrack. That was a that was a very fun conversation, Hal. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Of course, that's a topic that <laughs> is near and dear to my heart, but very enjoyable. We thank Caroline for coming on. Yes. And I don't want to be too much of a tease, but we'll have some other special guests coming up in about a month. I think this is going to be pretty cool for people. We're not going to say any more yet, but uh, be on the lookout for, for further word on that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Well, you do often say that the next episode is going to be a fun one, but in this case... I think it's going to live up to the hype. <laughs> well, I think they're the all two too. They're all fun, but uh, yeah, this one's going to have a little extra, extra something special. That's it for tonight's episode. Let's do our little spiel here at the end. None but the bravest presentation of bull market entertainment, and soon to be a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you want to interact with us, please find us online on Twitter. We're at NBTB Podcast. Our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thank you again to Caroline Madden, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.